Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Scripture Chronicles. I'm Dylan, and joining me is Corey. Corey, how are you doing today? Doing great. Excited to get to my favorite part of the Book of Numbers today. This is your favorite part of the Book of Numbers? I didn't even know that. Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you are new here, welcome to the show. If you aren't new here, welcome all the same. How this podcast works is we are exploring the thesis that the Bible is a single unified story that ultimately points to Christ. And in doing so, we're going through the Bible in real time, highlighting key narrative and thematic elements so as to give you guys a picture of the overall story as it unfolds. That being said, we're going to go ahead and give our short recap as is our custom. So last time we covered Numbers chapter 15 through 21. So Corey, what exactly did we cover in the last episode? Last week, we saw more rebellion. We were just hoping that there'd be some people who would not completely rebel At this point, we're especially hoping that Moses won't fall. And so as we start this section, we have laws about holiness and how one is to approach God. And right after chapter 15, instructions on holiness, we have Korah's rebellion, which they're all crying about, well, who elected Moses? Kind of like the same thing that Miriam and Aaron complained about back in Numbers chapter 12. And so they're just doing the same thing again. We talked about how they actually chose Moses to be their leader when they denied going up the mountain in Exodus 19. And, of course, we saw God do something totally new to show that he is, in fact, with Moses by opening up the ground to eat all of those who were involved in this great rebellion. We see God choose Aaron as this family line that he is with. He is with Moses. He's with Aaron as his leaders by letting his staff bud as opposed to any of the other tribes of Israel's staff. So he's, all right, he's with the Levites. So follow his Levite head, really Moses, but also Aaron. And so 18 and 19, we get more commands on holiness So we're kind of getting more things that we have seen in Leviticus, and then we get more rebellion. And so in chapter 20, as the people are traveling from Zin, and they stay in Kadesh, little fact about Kadesh, that is the same consonants for the word holy or holiness, yet the people and Moses are definitely not acting holy, set apart to the Lord. We saw a great bunch of similarities to Exodus 17 when the people complain about being thirsty. We see God tell Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out for you. And Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, he speaks to the people and calls them a bunch of rebels and says, are we to bring water from this rock for you? And are we wondering, like, is he talking about himself and Yahweh? Or is he talking about himself and Aaron? Kind of like all the other Israelite complaints where they say, oh, you and Aaron are leading us astray. And so it seems like even Moses is losing sight that it is God who's doing all these things. He's given himself credit where credit is not due. And so he talks to the people, but then famously strikes the rock twice. And God's response to Moses is that you did not uphold me as holy. And so despite all the commands of holiness, even Moses is not upholding Yahweh as holy. Even Moses is not believing, like putting faith in Yahweh. 
And then Aaron dies at the end of chapter 20. And last chapter we talked about was 21. And that's the famous passage of the bronze snake where the people complain and are punished for unfaithfulness with venomous snakes. And we see this really clear idea of atonement where the people simply need to believe in God's vehicle of salvation. In this case, it's a bronze snake. You just need to look at it as it's exalted up on a stick. If you look on it, you're saved. Another way is as if you believe Yahweh's means of salvation, that is actually doing the actions of looking up at the bronze snake, you'll be saved from the death that your sin brought about, the death that comes in this case through venomous snakes. So crazy gospel connections, so closely related to what Jesus did on the cross that John actually brings it up in John chapter 3. That brings us to Numbers 22, and we should be coming to Numbers 22 with really the complaints, the grumblings, and the fact that every single person has failed so far. I mean, we've seen Joshua and Caleb back in Numbers chapter 14 get pats in the back from God. They're the only ones going into the land, but really we should be bummed. We should be saying, man, not even Moses could do what was right in Yahweh's eyes. Even Moses did what was right in his own eyes. We should just be hoping things don't get any worse, because how could things get any worse? And so here we come to Numbers 22. It's really ironic to me how all the way back in Exodus, right? Exodus 19, when they first get to the mountain, and then from that point on, 20, 21, 22, you know, those chapters, where Moses comes, delivers the law to the people, sprinkles the blood on them, and then those famous words from the people, we will do everything that Yahweh says. And those just ring in my ears every time I go through, not just numbers, but the remainder of the Hebrew Bible. It's just this constant downward spiral from that point on. And it's just probably the most ironic words ever spoken in the Bible, in my opinion. One other thing that I wanted to point out for the recap from what Corey was saying, too, is we do have that passage that we went over last time for the bronze serpent in the wilderness, as well as the rock that Moses struck, and we have Moses being judged as a result. And interestingly, both of those passages are picked up by New Testament authors later on. And so you have John, for instance, picking up on the idea of the bronze serpent and pointing that and correlating that with Christ. And then so too with the rock that Moses struck and the rock that they drank from in Corinthians, you have that being correlated with Christ as well. So we'll get to those passages much later than now, but I wanted to point that out just because it is something that is constantly on the mind of the author of the Torah. That is this idea that in all of these things, what we are looking for is someone to save us. We are looking for a Messiah, and that Messiah vision really started all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. When God is cursing the serpent, and he says, there's going to be somebody who comes, he's going to crush your head, you're going to bruise his heel. So ever since that point, we've been looking for someone that is going to bring about the ultimate blessing that God wants to give humanity, not just a select nation, but all of humanity, God desires to bless through this individual. And so we've been seeing that unfold through the Torah up until this point, through Genesis and Exodus, where God, in choosing Abraham and his descendants, said that through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless not just you, but the world. That blessing is carried on. Actually, Corey has an entire blog post on that that I recommend you check out. But that blessing idea is carried on through all of Abraham's descendants. Abraham's descendants become a nation. The nation's called Israel, named after Jacob, who's renamed Israel. 
and they consistently are blessed. And God in Exodus chooses to bless this nation, and through this nation, he is trying to bring about his blessing for the world. Yet, these people are constantly looking for opportunities to (laughs) mess that all up. And so that's what we have been seeing, and that's what we're seeing today. So continuing on with the theme of blessing, we get to this really strange narrative. So this narrative is probably familiar to a good number of you, and that is the Balaam narrative, where this king, this king of Moab, Balak, sees Israel coming. And he fears because of Israel coming. And their numbers are many, the text says. It's verse 3 of chapter 22 now. So he is afraid of them because they're many. And so what he does is he decides to get this guy who he knows is good at cursing people. And that is Balaam. Balaam is a diviner. He's a sorcerer of sorts. He's not a good guy. And so what he does is he says, hey, Go and get this guy Balaam, pay him whatever he wants, so that he will come and curse Israel. And again, this is playing directly into that theme that we've been seeing in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, up until this point, that theme of blessing versus curses. And so he wants to curse Israel. And so we should know, we should have alarm bells going off in our head right away that those who curse Israel shall be cursed. So this is probably not going to go well for Balak or Balaam if he chooses to actually follow through with this. We should be thinking Genesis 12, those who bless Israel will be blessed. But in verse 6, King Balak, he says of Balaam, those who bless you are blessed and those who curse you are cursed. It's this great situational irony for us, the readers, like, no, that's not the truth. (laughs) he is not the one who has this authority. It's Israel because of Yahweh. So really, Yahweh is the one who is able to do these things. Finally, that Balak is calling on this sorcerer to go against Yahweh and Yahweh's people. Anyways, I just want to interject with that funny bit. Continue. No, thank you for your interjection. That really does serve to kind of preface the narrative. So that is kind of the situation in which we now find ourselves. Balak is afraid. He wants to curse this people so that they cannot overtake Moab. And so he opts for Balaam to do that. And Balaam has this reputation, like we already established, of being the sorcerer diviner. Apparently, those who bless Balaam are blessed, and those who curse Balaam are cursed. Again, this great irony, like Corey just pointed out. And so, in hiring him then, he is actually directly going against Yahweh. And going against Yahweh, obviously, we have Yahweh show up immediately in the story, and he shows up to Balaam. And so, that is really the beginning of the bit where this becomes kind of convoluted and really interesting. And so I think it does behoove us to kind of go through this and explain it a little bit and figure out what exactly is going on. Because Balaam specifically refuses to go with them because he is not about to curse those people whom Yahweh has blessed. And so his reason for refusal, he even says, you can pay me all of your gold, all of your silver, and I won't go with you. And the reason being is because Yahweh doesn't want me to curse these people. Finally, towards the end of chapter 22, it actually says that Yahweh will permit Balaam to go. However, Balaam can only speak that which Yahweh says. And so at this point, two things need to be said, one of which I'll let Corey say. But the first thing I want to point out is that now we might be tempted in reading this story to be looking at Balaam and be going, hmm, 
maybe this guy is a good guy. After all, he is hearing from Yahweh. He refers to God as Yahweh, his proper name, and he is obeying in a certain extent what Yahweh has said. So perhaps this guy is good. Maybe he resembles another character like maybe Melchizedek. Maybe he's one of these you know, Gentile priests of God or something like this. And to which I would say, no, that is not what the author is trying to do by saying that Balaam refers to God as Yahweh or that he follows his commands or anything like that. Balaam is a bad guy. And the reason we can know that is because he is a diviner. And other places in the Torah will find where God specifically condemns this practice and says that those who practice sorcery divination should be put to death. These people are not of Yahweh. And so this guy isn't a good guy. Nevertheless, he is being utilized by Yahweh for Yahweh's purposes. And so that is a good distinction to make. And it is constantly a distinction that the Pentateuch or the Torah does make where it has a guy who isn't really good but is used by Yahweh in spite of his treachery and actually that trope is now being applied to Israel as a whole considering the fact that they are consistently rebelling in numbers and yet God is desiring to bless them so that is a constant theme that we see Yahweh blessing those who aren't necessarily good but he blesses them in spite of them for his own purposes. So that's what I wanted to say about Balaam being a good moral character. He's not necessarily, he's definitely a really bad dude. Nevertheless, he's being used by Yahweh. The other thing that I'll let Corey point out here is now that we have God say, go, you can go ahead and go just say what I am going to tell you to say. We have this really interesting narrative that pops up in verse 22, where right after God says go, all of a sudden he seems to oppose Balaam. So, Corey, what's going on there? Yeah, we've seen verses like verse 22 where God's anger is kindled, being really bad things. So we saw back in Exodus, Moses got God's anger kindled when he denied going with Yahweh to save Israel from Egypt. Right? So it's like, wow, what, what just happened? What did Balaam do? Because... He said, no, I will not go beyond the command of Yahweh, my God. He calls him my God. So there's something really interesting going on here. Don't go, oh, fine, fine. You can go, but only do what I tell you. That's the last instructions to Balaam from Yahweh in verse 20. And so he goes up and goes. And all of a sudden, Yahweh's anger is kindled. And there's no real great explanation here. And so as we look into the story looking for answers, we first remember what verse 20 said. Okay, only do what I tell you. He gets up and goes. Before he does anything, Yahweh's anger is kindled. And as he's riding on the donkey, and he's got servants with him, and there's the angel of Yahweh standing on the road. And remember, the angel of Yahweh is the same thing, the scripture of the angel that came to meet Moses at the burning bush which Yahweh himself said, I am Yahweh, as the angel of Yahweh, and Moses called him Yahweh. And so see, okay, this is Yahweh. And what we have talked about as a Christophany, this is Christ here in front of him. And why is God standing in front of Balaam? We're still not given any sort of clue, but we have the donkey not wanting to go down this little narrow pathway. So even like bumps up against Balaam, steps on his foot, and Balaam is getting pissed. So Balaam, his anger gets kindled. 
he starts striking the donkey with his staff when all of a sudden this donkey starts talking. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam just goes right along with it. Oh, because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand. Then I would kill you. <laughs> and I just love that he's not even taken aback that his donkey is talking. But his donkey reminds him, am I not your donkey who you've ridden all your life long to this day? This is my habit to treat you this way. Balaam's like, you know, no. And then all of a sudden his eyes are open to the angel of Yahweh standing there. And the angel then asks him, who again is Yahweh himself, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. And so although we did not see Balaam do anything, we have Yahweh himself saying, your way is perverse before me. And we have Balaam say in verse 34, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of Yahweh said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. We are not told that Balaam necessarily did something wrong, but yet his ways were somehow perverse or evil in the sight of Yahweh. And although Balaam was willing to turn back, Yahweh said, no, just keep going with these men. So we have to do a bit of an interpretation here. So take this interpretation with a grain of salt because it's the passage is, is not super clear. But I feel like the best answer here is that Yahweh thought Balaam wasn't willing to say only what he would command him to. So he stopped him using his donkey to make sure he would only speak his words, that is Yahweh's words. And so if you're anything like me, you'd be wondering like, what the heck? Why isn't it give us more to go on here. And we want to point it out because a lot of people have this question, but we also want to point back to the text and saying, well, the text does not see this as a super important question to answer. So we have to say, well, we're not totally sure. Yahweh knows best. His ways are perverse somehow. And we're going to go back to focusing on what is important in the story. And so we should be really focusing on, okay, hopefully Balaam will only do that which is right in Yahweh's eyes. And so as we start chapter 23, Dylan, what is the first thing that Balaam does? Well, the first thing that Balaam does is he goes up and says to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And so at face value, you might be looking at this and going, well, I don't see anything wrong necessarily. However, we have just gone through a book and a half prescribing the exact ways in which sacrifices are to be carried out. This is not it. And so that should probably flag us right from the get-go that, hmm, perhaps something isn't quite right here. Continuing on with that story, Balak did as Balaam had said. And so they offer on each altar a bull and a ram. After having done that, Balaam goes and he basically blesses the people. We have this weird kind of juxtaposition between something that is akin to divination. It's not really that which God has commanded be the appropriate way for sacrifices to be offered. And we already know that Balaam is a diviner. He's not a good character. And so we shouldn't be expecting that the things that he does to be necessarily good. 
And he nevertheless blesses the people. And so we have this weird irony in the respect that this gentleman, the guy who is a diviner, a bad dude, is the one actually carrying out a blessing on the people. And so, like I already said, God utilizes people who aren't good to fulfill his purposes. And so that's kind of what we see going on here. You'd really think that Yahweh would just strike him down. He was ready to kill him in that alleyway with his donkey because his ways are perverse. But yet he does this thing that is not right. And he's still allowed to live and to speak. And as Dylan pointed out, we know this is wrong from earlier in the story. But now we're getting into interpretation that relies on the wisdom of God. That is, okay, what did the Bible say about this? Because right now it's not saying, and this was bad in Yahweh's eyes, or this was good in Yahweh's eyes. And so he knows it's bad. And we go forward after he arranged the seven altars and he says, perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me. He didn't even say, oh, yes, build these things to Yahweh. So it's just kind of his practices. We should know that his practices are not good practices. And as he's uttering this oracle, he in his oracle says that Balak brought me from Arab and he said, come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. And verse 8 of chapter 23, he says, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom Yahweh has not denounced? And so we see a very clear look back to Genesis chapter 12. God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And Yahweh is even turning the intended curse of Balak into blessing. And we should get the idea that Balaam himself is not a great character, but is being used I'm sure that he would have just spoken curses if Yahweh had not intervened. Really interesting in verse 9, though. He says, from the top of the crags, I see him. From the hills, I behold him. It's weird. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. And that people dwelling alone is singular, but the nations, goyim, is plural. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number the fourth part of Israel, which we should be thinking things like all of those blessings of God to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You will be more numerous than the dust of the earth or the stars in the sky, or the sands of the sea. He sees someone from the crags and he's seeing Israel so great and mighty. And he's saying, let me die the death of the upright. My end be like his. And so he's ready to die doing what's right here. And so Balak says, what, you, what have you done? I told you to curse my enemies. Behold, all you're doing is bless them. Well, let's try to do something else. But the whole time Balaam says things like, I can only speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth. So they go to another place. And in this next place, they go to a field in Zophim, to the top of Pisgah. So notice they're going to high places the tops of hills, things like that. And again, he builds seven more altars. And as he builds seven more altars to offer a bull and a ram on each altar, he gives another blessing instead of cursing. And so again, he's turning his attention towards Balak. He says, rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. As he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Pretty interesting that Balaam even knows the character of God, a God who makes covenants and keeps covenants. 
Yeah, this is the character of God. Behold, verse 20, I receive a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Yahweh their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Which is really interesting because there is no king yet in Israel. Yet there was a promise for a king back in Genesis 49, verse 22. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. Although that second them is singular, masculine. So he is for him like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. And this is word for word quoting God's blessing, well, through Jacob, God blesses the tribe of Judah. And in Genesis 49 verse 9, he's talking about some seed from the line of Judah that will be king and who will rule forever. And this ruler out of Judah will be like a lion and who dares to rise it up. And it does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So kind of interesting. It, it seems to be going back and forth between Israel and the ruler to come out of Israel that we know is promised again from Genesis 49. So it's just really weird and Thing. Well, is this just a stretch to be about the Messiah? Well, it's hard to say that when here Balaam is directly quoting Genesis 49, verse 9. And so if we're kind of on the fence, picture these oracles as building up to a clearer and clearer point. And so as we get on to the next couple oracles, we will see only clearer and clearer picture of what God is wanting and the focus on. Dylan, anything else from these first two oracles? Yeah, one other thing that I wanted to point out and that I've already alluded to at the beginning of today's podcast and along the lines of, of what Corday was just saying with regard to the picture that is being formed here, remember what the author of the Torah has already been doing in previous books. So we've already seen how the author of the Torah is bringing out two main themes. And the themes are blessing, so God's blessing to the people, to Israel, to the world, etc. And in line with that theme of blessing, that there's going to be one through whom the ultimate blessing comes. And so with that in the back of your mind, as we look at these oracles, the picture that they begin to display really fits nicely in line with the thesis that the author of the Torah has already been propagating. The thesis that there is going to be somebody that's going to come, and through him, the world is going to be blessed. And so it really is starting to take shape. In light of that fact, we see a lot of this imagery. I mean, a lot of the imagery can be applied directly to Israel at the moment. But a lot of it, there's something that just goes beyond that, like Corey has been pointing out. And so, Balak says to Balaam, do not curse them at all and don't bless them at all. Just shut up. Stop it already. I'm like, I brought you here to curse them 
And then look what's happening. You're blessing them, and this is completely unacceptable. However, Balaam answers back to Balak, uh, did I not tell you all that Yahweh says, that is what I must do? And so again, we have this, this point where Yahweh is utilizing Balaam to do his good will. It's not because of any moral quality in Balaam. And so again, we see Balak take Balaam to another high place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them there. I have no idea. This logic doesn't make sense to me. I, mean, I wonder what you make of this, Corey, just the idea that, oh, maybe, you know, if we go over here, then you'll you'll curse them after Balaam just tells him, you know, hey, doesn't matter where we're at. I'm going to say what Yahweh says. But nevertheless, Balak takes Balaam to Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven more altars. Okay, so... Still, I mean, you get this high point of him going, I'm going to say what Yahweh says, and then building more altars. So, again, not a great character. More rams, more bulls being sacrificed. And so Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And then we get to the third oracle. So, Corey, the third oracle. In the third oracle, Balaam saw it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel. And so he lifted up his eyes. And saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Very interesting. So this character, Balaam, now has the Spirit of God upon him to bless Israel. And so the oracle of Balaam, the son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Really interesting. So now he's got these opened eyes. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. And that word for encampments is same word that can be used for the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. So your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. It's kind of sounding a bit like Eden. God with his people in a good place and plants his people in a good place. His king, what king does Yahweh have yet? Well, his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. So what was them in the last oracle is now just singular. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries. He shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion. And here we go again, directly quoting Genesis 49 the great prophecy of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And stopped midway through there, it continues, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And again, now he's directly quoting Genesis 12, that great messianic promise God gives to Abraham, where he says, through you, your seed, all the earth, all nations, even the Gentiles will be blessed. And so here again, Balak's anger is kindled against Balaam. He struck his hands together 
And again, I called you to curse my enemies. Behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but Yahweh has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, or Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh to do either good or bad, like the tree of knowledge of good and bad, Tobin Ra. So I cannot do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks, that will I speak. And now, behold, I'm going to my people. Come, I'll let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Um, this phrase, the latter days, everywhere else besides the Torah gets um, translated in the last days, like the end times. And a lot of places in the Torah that have this phrase is in sections where is in poetry. Early on, like our first and second episode, we told you, the listeners, to really pay attention when the type of literature changes from, say, narrative to poetry. And the first time it did that was in Genesis chapter 2, where God, you know, set apart the last day of creation from the rest of creation. You might even argue as earlier when God blessed humans. At the end of chapter 2, God blessed man and woman. And so after God blessed the seventh day, set it apart as holy. Um, God blessing man and woman. And he says, for this reason, you shall leave father and mother. You shall be joined together. So husband and wife, two shall become one flesh. We see that as like really important theology. Our old professor that we talk about every now and then, Ray Lubeck, he actually just came to Kauai to do a little Torah seminar. And he refers to these passages of poetry as HDT. Um, as high definition, or he also likes to call them heavy-duty theology. And so when these heavy-duty theology sections of poetry come up, we should really be paying attention. Besides those two I've mentioned, we've also been talking a lot about Genesis 49. Well, that's a big poetry section at the end of Genesis. And here's a really big poetry section at the end of Numbers. And this is about the last days. And so we're going to see more poetry sections in the Torah that will have this same exact phrase in the last days. And it makes us have to wonder, is the Torah about way past events dealing with ancient Israel? Or is the Torah trying to get us to focus on things to happen still to come? Is it about the future? Well, here we see Balaam himself saying, this is about the future. In verse 15, he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And it's like I said, it seems like each of these oracles is building on one another. So earlier we saw Balaam say that there's a shot of a king among them, but yet we know there's no king. And it seems like that king figure who is among them, who we can see over the crags, is coming from there, but he's not here yet. And in the middle of 17, it continues, a star shall come out of Jacob. That is a really big figure in Revelation. That title's about Jesus. 
And in Matthew, that's how the three wise men find baby Jesus. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Again, the scepter from Genesis 49. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sarah also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So this is about the one from Jacob that will have dominion. And as Genesis 49 says, he will have dominion over all nations, all Gentiles. He will have the scepter and it will never depart between his feet. And it goes on to talk about more nations and kings in which God will destroy using Israel. And perhaps his king that we know will be coming from the line of Judah. And so just to recap, these poetry sections, this one in particular is really trying to get us to focus on the Messiah to come, the one that will reverse the curse that we saw on the third page of Genesis. And if we're ever wondering, what's the point of all of these words of the Torah? The great meaning of the Torah does not come at a verse-by-verse level, kind of like how we're used to reading books, but really at a great macro-level view, especially as we read through all of the narrative and discourse and then get to these sections of poetry which are trying to get us to look up recently i was listening to an audiobook i've been loving audiobooks lately listening to a book by jocko willink called the dichotomy of leadership and he was saying in his book who also is another author i think it's leaf babbitt or babin but they're told as leaders of Navy SEALs, that they're instructed not to look straight ahead, but they're actually instructed to look up because as they look up, they get a better view of things. And so that's what these poetry sections are doing in the Torah. They're getting us to look up to see, well, what is this whole story really about? Because yes, we learn a lot from Israel and the way that God dwells with them, but the Torah is not just about the past. A bunch of the Torah is trying to get us to look ahead to the future. As the Torah itself says, in the latter days, this is what this is about. And this is when these things will take place. And so I don't know if any Navy SEALs will ever listen to this podcast, but you picture yourselves in Navy SEAL training as you're reading through the Bible and saying, oh, yeah, I have to look up. I have to look up at the big picture because the tabernacle, the clean and unclean food groups is not trying to get us to take that very literally, but it's trying to point to something else. Whether it's trying to say, well, God cares about everything from the way that you dress to the ways that you eat. Yeah, very true. A great uh, shared truth from Scripture. And also we get to places like this. Oh, yeah, those things are also all pointing to Jesus. And as Dylan has been pointing out a couple of times now, oh, yeah, just as all of the Torah has done so far. It's just fitting right in with there. So Dylan, anything else in Balaam's oracles? Honestly, I think that's a good summary of the oracles. I don't think we need to spend much more time on those. Again, they are pointing forward and they are propagating, that is continuing on, the thesis 
that the author of the Torah has already begun all the way back in Genesis, and that is that ultimately God desires to bless his people, even in spite of his people, specifically in spite of his people, as a matter of fact, and that also he's going to do that through his Messiah. And so that should be what we are looking for, and that should be our hope as we read through the Hebrew Bible, hoping for this Messiah to come, and then when we get to Jesus, how excited you know, how excited should we be? So uh, chapter 25 then is, it brings us to a spot that we've already seen. And what I mean by that is in chapter 24, we saw uh, Balaam go to Peor and he set up altars there. Now, all of a sudden we have kind of a shift in the narrative. We're no longer talking about Balak and Balaam, but now we are talking about Israel. So in the Balak and Balaam narrative, we have Balaam specifically blessing Israel in spite of Balak's desire to curse them. And again, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Balak desires to curse Israel. And as a result, Moab will be cursed. And so we'll see that kind of unfold. But here now we have Israel after having just been blessed, fall into egregious sin. So it says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So right off the bat, we have Israel. They were just blessed. And then they start doing exactly what they've already been commanded not to do. And that is intermarrying and taking on women from Moab. And these women, it specifically says in verse 2, they invite the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal at Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before Yahweh, that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And so here we have a I mean, this this just rings golden calf in my mind. You know, every time you have this kind of grand thing happen for Israel, you have Israel immediately turn around and blow it. And it really serves to illustrate that point I was making earlier on, that God does not bless Israel because of Israel. God does not utilize a lot of these characters because they're good characters. God blesses Israel and utilizes these characters specifically because God is God and he utilizes them for his good purpose. Moreover, at the end of time, these people can't go, oh, I helped a little bit. God gets all the glory in this. God takes people who are crummy and miserable and horrible and nevertheless brings them along and utilizes them and blesses them so that he can gain glory. I think that deserves an amen. (laughs) <laughs> keep going <laughs> yeah um and and that really is something that is being brought out here so we have the people now being abhorrent in the eyes of yahweh and yahweh says kill the leaders of the people so in verse six behold one of the people of israel came and brought a midianite woman to his family in the sight of moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting And so I can just see this. So Moses has gathered all of the leaders, right? And he's basically saying, kill all of those among you who are whoring themselves out to these Moabite gods, to Baal. 
And then while they're weeping at the tent of meeting, while they're realizing what they have to do, they're crying. And all of a sudden, this one drunk idiot just walks through the camp and they stop crying for a second and just stare in shock at this moron who is just hanging on this midnight woman, slowly walking in a drunken daze through the camp. I, I mean, it, it just plays out so clearly in my mind. And I can just like feel the tension of that moment. And so what happens here is after that, when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, so this is in the line of the high priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and he took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and he pierced both, that's a good way to put it, pierced. Yeah, he stabbed them. The man of Israel and the woman, both of them through their belly. And so the plague, I guess there was a plague on Israel because of this. The plague that was on Israel stopped. Nevertheless, there was a total of 24,000 that died as a result of this plague because of the people's whoring themselves out to yet another God who isn't Yahweh. And so, because of that, the zeal of Phineas is rewarded, interestingly enough. So, Corey, you want to take us through the next section here? Yeah, just one last thing on that last section. Verse 4, Yahweh said to Moses, take the chiefs and hang them, the chiefs of the people, and, and hang those who are doing evil, that is. That word could also mean pierce. So it could be that Phineas is very literally taking that command to heart right away and piercing them through. So, yes, hang or pierce or impale. This is kind of interesting that they're translated hang, but then he pierces them through. And so getting into the end of our section here, in verse 10 to the end of 25, Yahweh said to Moses, Phineas has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. So here we have a chief, and the chief is doing this great crime. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. So, just a really terrible and messed up story. After all that we just saw in that big overview, looking up from the cliffs of Moab, God blessed Israel. Right before that section, Israel was cursing God. Right after God blesses them, Israel goes back to cursing and disobeying God again. And it's just such a sad story. Even the turning back of God's anger just requires this killing, in which we'll see verses in the Torah and Deuteronomy say, you know, you got to purge the evil or the wickedness from among you. And it's so important that the integrity 
for the people the righteousness be maintained. We talked about this a lot. God isn't just contrite. He doesn't need the glory from people. He doesn't need the worship from people, but he wants to preserve this people and bless them. And so he will do as much as he can to intervene of the people totally ruining this covenant before they even get into the land. He wants to bring them into land. He wants to bless them. That's what we've seen from the very beginning. As we saw, like Dylan said in Genesis, there's so much blessing from God. These covenants were all started on God's behalf, going to the people, saying, I have covenants in which I want to bless you. Um, and yet, this really gnarly story happens. And out of all this, God gives a covenant of peace to Phineas and his family, a perpetual priesthood for their jealousy on God's behalf. Yahweh desires to bless. Yahweh will bless despite the curses from his covenant people. Yahweh will bless despite the desiring of curses from his chosen people's enemies. That is God's desire to bless. And so this section of the book of Numbers, the reason why it's in the beginning, this is my favorite section of Numbers, is that despite anything that any human can do, God is still going to have his way desiring to bless his people. Dylan, anything else to add here? Honestly, I think that's a good word to end on. So let's go ahead and wrap up there. Guys, thank you so much yet again for tuning into this episode of the Scripture Chronicles podcast. If you do enjoy the podcast, there are some other resources out there as well. We have our website, www.thebibleasastory.com. There you can find the blog. You can listen to the podcast there as well. You can access the YouTube channel, which we do have. Another video will be coming soon and all sorts of other things. You can also follow us on Facebook. Facebook is the best place probably for the most real-time information. And if you'd like to help out the show, you can do that in a number of ways. Praying for the show. You can help it out financially by going to Patreon. You can access the Patreon page via the Donate tab on our website or the PayPal as well. Uh, either of those do help out the show. It is paid for completely out of pocket, and there are a number of expenses that go along with hosting the show on the website, etc. So if you would like to help it out that way, that'd be great. Finally, if you enjoy the show, perhaps one of the best possible ways to help it out is to leave a review wherever you listen. So leave a positive review on iTunes or any other podcast portal and uh, that greatly helps out the show helps it get into more people's hands so other than that i don't think i have anything else um so shalom adios, adios. i suppose <laughs> see you guys